Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Owl Post Again. Today we will be discussing the magical bond between Harry and Pettigrew, Hermione finally learning to set boundaries, and our impressions of Prisoner of Azkaban as a whole and its place in the series. So this is our last episode of the season, and uh, for one, I'm really excited because uh, Goblet of Fire is is one of our favorite books. I think it's both of our favorite books right now, yeah. Uh, And I'm really, really excited to get started in that. I, I was saying to you the other day, starting Goblet of Fire really feels like going home after like a long day or something like Mm. it's so comforting yeah i remember when i was a kid i used to read it when i was upset or something and even just starting the book the first few chapters with the exception of the first one are are so calming yeah nothing really bad happens in them so um yeah it's just really really a wonderful thing and i i'm really excited to get started on that but before we do um i think this episode you know a lot happens in this chapter but um i wanted to primarily focus on sort of our impressions, as you were saying in the in the intro, of the book as a whole and how it fits into the series. Um, so with that, let's get into our synopsis of the chapter. So Harry and Hermione have to rush back to the hospital wing to make it in time before Dumbledore locks the door. On the way, they have to hide from first Snape and Fudge, who are discussing Snape's glory, and then from Peeves. They do make it in time to meet Dumbledore, and they let him know everything has gone to plan. Moments later, after they get it back into bed, they hear Snape screaming in anger, and then he and Fudge burst back into the hospital wing, and Snape immediately accuses Harry of somehow helping Sirius disappear. Both Dumbledore and Pomfrey, and even Fudge, assure him that that's ridiculous. Harry has been locked in here the whole time, and then Dumbledore confirms with Fudge that the Dementors will now be removed from Hogwarts. Ron eventually wakes up, and Hermione explains to him what happened. The next day, even though it's a Hogsmeade weekend, the trio decide to go down to the lake and then to visit Hagrid, who is thrilled to tell them the news that Buckbeak has escaped. Hagrid also lets them know that Lupin is packing to leave Hogwarts, and Harry rushes to Lupin's office to say goodbye. Lupin sees Harry coming on the Marauder's map that he still has. Lupin tells Harry that he has to leave because Snape was so angry that he accidentally let it slip at breakfast that Lupin is a werewolf, and that if he doesn't resign on his own, parents will be demanding he leave in a couple of days anyway. Lupin talks to him about his stag Patronus and Prong slash James and gives Harry back the Marauder's Map and the Invisibility Cloak. Dumbledore comes to see Lupin off, and then he and Harry talk about Professor Trelawney's prediction and his feeling that Harry should have let Sirius and Lupin kill Pettigrew. Dumbledore then gives Harry a very nice compliment um, regarding James and tells him that he learned from Lupin about them becoming animagi at school, um, completing Lupin's narrative arc here. Dumbledore also teaches Harry about loss and how our loved ones live on through us after they're gone. Everyone at the school passes their exams that we care about. Gryffindor wins the House Cup, and everyone celebrates. Does anyone not pass their exams ever in the entire series? I don't think so. I don't think so. On the train home, Hermione tells them that she's dropping Muggle Studies, and with that and Divination gone, she'll have a normal schedule, so she's returned to the Time Turner. She's hoping to be a lot less overworked next year. 
Um, while they are sitting on the train, an owl flies up to their window with a letter from Sirius. Uh, this letter says that he's okay and that he's in hiding with Buckbeak. He also explains that he's the one who sent the fireball to Harry and encloses a permission slip for Harry to go to Hogsmeade next year. A postscript explains that the tiny owl is a present for Ron as an apology for losing Scabbers as a pet. Ron is delighted and seems very much cheered up. He tells Harry and Hermione that they have to come with his family over the summer to watch the Quidditch World Cup, which England will be hosting this year. When they get to King's Cross, Harry cheerfully explains to Uncle Vernon that he learned he has a wizard godfather who is also a convicted murderer on the run, and he feels very positive about the summer ahead with this new leverage. So this is a really fun chapter. A lot of loose ends are wrapped mm -hmm. up and, and just a lot of really like fun conversations are had. Um, so let's start with the kind of the first real conversation, which is between Harry, Dumbledore, Madame Pomfrey, Fudge, Snape, and Hermione. Right. A lot of people. So, um, Dumb and a lot of shouting, really. A lot of shouting. So Snape's really mad because Sirius has escaped. He assumes correctly that Harry has something to do with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in, in reality, um, everyone is like, this doesn't make any sense. They've been locked in here the whole time. Which um, Dumbledore orchestrated on purpose so that Harry would have an alibi. Of course. And so um, it's, I think it's really funny because in this conversation, Dumbledore is totally outing Harry and Hermione yeah. if anyone, you know, was suspicious of them, which they are. So he says at one point, unless they can be in two places at once, like wink, wink, <laughs> um, he seems very amused and is kind of smiling the whole time. Like, stop giving it away, Dumbledore. Um, right. And and the fact that he says they, he's referring to Harry and Hermione, and uh, Snape has not accused Hermione of anything. No, he's so bringing Hermione into it. When Dumbledore he, is yeah. totally giving her away. Um, yeah, and he's really cheerful the whole time, which would be suspicious to anybody when a convicted murderer has just escaped under his nose. So right. clearly he wanted that to happen. Right. And I think Snape realizes that, and then he realizes, I can't go up against the headmaster on this one. Right. He knows he can, but he's furious. And, I mean, we, there's kind of a plot hole here that is, you know, possibly understandable but confusing, which is that... We know McGonagall and Dumbledore know about the Time Turner, and supposedly in the book, none of the other professors know, um, right. which seems crazy because you would think that at least her professors would need to know that that was happening. Or, or that they would notice. Or they like, would notice something what? was going on. I think on. we've talked about this before, but like no other professor has like looked at the schedule and seen that Hermione Granger is in multiple classes at the same time and has never missed any of them. Right. I don't know if like her official schedule doesn't have... I don't know what it is, but it's it seems yeah. strange, and it seems like, um, in in theory, Snape would know, and then would maybe be able to figure things out. Um, right. But of course, like t having time turners is like totally not allowed, and so even if somebody did notice that, they may think um, they may just never put two and two together because um, why would anybody give this girl a time turner, which is what we talked about before. Right. And since we don't really hear that much about time turners in the rest of the series, um, it's also possible that it's not common knowledge that they exist or mm -hmm. that time travel is possible. Um, it might be a thing that only a few people know about, in which case it makes sure. sense that they wouldn't know that Hermione was doing it. So even though we're going to talk about how this chapter has um, the happiest ending of maybe any book, um, Harry loses technically both Sirius and Lupin really in one blow this this chapter and I mean this day time period. So 
even though they're both safe and, you know, Sirius didn't get killed and neither did Lupin and and Mm -hmm. he didn't hurt anyone, like, everything's, like, better than it could have been with them. Um, You know, Sirius has to go into hiding. He can't go live with Sirius, like we've talked about before and how sad that is. And then Lupin has to be, um, is basically going to be kicked out of Hogwarts if he doesn't leave. And so um, Lupin has really become even more than serious at this point, like a father figure to him because he's known him throughout this year. He's yeah. taught him um, about Patronus. Um, and I was also realizing in this char- with this scene and this book that Lupin is definitely one of my favorite characters, just like in the series in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's got I a great arc. really I mean, like him. Uh, of, of all the characters that are um, father figures to Harry, Lupin's the one that, at least at first, is the most um, relatable. Yeah. I think. Because he he really comes in and he's so gentle, um, but firm. Mm -hmm. You know, he really has a strong sense of right and wrong. um, And that does mean that he allows rule breaking sometimes Mm -hmm. when he feels like it's okay. um, Which which jives with Harry's kind of worldview and outlook. Right. So he really is a a great mentor to Harry. um, and, And he has trouble with harry later on in the series as well Mm -hmm. so there's a great arc of them kind of reconciling too right um and and coming to see eye to eye on things um but yeah it it, it is a huge blow i i think um it's really hard for harry because he felt like he was very close to sort of understanding where he and his father fit into this legacy of the um the four friends of that generation Um, and he's really starting to learn a lot more about his father and, and having those two of his father's best friends there Mm -hmm. with him the previous night, he kind of really had his mind opened to what that, what that man was like. And now both of them are are gone. Right. So it's almost like he almost had it and now it's gone again. Dumbledore will talk to Harry about James as well in this scene, but, um, yeah, it, it, it is like something that he's missing is not just a father figure, but also, like, learning Actual about, info his, about father. his father. Yeah. yeah. The other thing about Lupin's departure, which is interesting, is that um, this marks three books in a row, three years of school in a row, where the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor has left um, before, technically before the end of the teaching year and, you know, clearly are not going to be coming back. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, all for very different reasons. So, right, Quirrell is deceased. Um, yes. Uh, Lockhart is insane, um, due to incidents of the Chamber of Secrets (laughs) has to be taken away, and Lupin is the situation. So, three is a pattern, and, you know, we, we will talk about, or the, the kids will talk about as the year goes on, like, that this position is cursed. Yeah. Um, and so do we think that, I mean, at this point, do we think that it is actually cursed, that there can't be a professor that stays longer than one year? I always felt that the cursed thing was an exaggeration. Yeah. Until we learned that it is truly a curse. I think it's in Deathly Hallows, or maybe Half-Blood Prince that we mm-hmm. learned that. But uh, until we, we like get that canonized in the text, I always assumed that it was something that the students talked about. Right. But that it wasn't real magic. You know, yeah, that yeah. seemed kind of inane to me that anyone would bother cursing the defense against the dark arts position you know um and like yeah like why and also why that position it didn't make any sense to me 
Um, but then eventually when we learned that Voldemort wanted that position and mm-hmm. when he didn't get it, he, he somehow cursed it so that no yeah. one else could hold it for more than a year. And um, people think, I mean, again, in kind of a classic thing that comes up over and over of like sort of Snape versus Voldemort, um, that Snape has cursed it because he wants the position. And we know that right. he wants the position. Um, so that was a popular theory for a long time that that Snape, either he had cursed it or was somehow working behind the scenes to orchestrate the downfall of each defense against the right. dark arts professor. And there are clues that he is doing that yeah. each year, you know, in the first year he's working in direct opposition to Quirrell the whole time. Yeah. In the second year, he's very scathing of Lockhart and he orchestrates Lockhart having to go into the chamber of secrets with Harry and Ron. That's true. Yeah. Cause he says like, we're going to let you do this. It's all you, man. Yeah. And then that triggers Lockhart into trying to leave, which triggers Harry and Ron to forcing him into the chamber. And then mm-hmm. all that goes down. And then this year, of course, we learn by the end that Snape was acting in opposition to Lupin because of a schoolboy grudge, and also because he wanted the Defense Against the Dark Arts position, and he's the trigger that causes Lupin to leave the school. Right. So that was my theory, and and theory of a lot of people for a while was that somehow Snape was cursing Mm -hmm. it. But I never thought it was something as specific or deliberate as, like, an actual curse placed upon the position itself. Right. No, I didn't either. So after the scene with Lupin, or kind of overlapping with this scene, Dumbledore comes in, says goodbye to Lupin, and then he and Harry are left alone. And they talk about a lot of things, but I want to actually read um, part of a quote that Dumbledore says to Harry during this time um, about Pettigrew and about the bond that they have, because I think it's really interesting and is not something I remember um, him saying at all. So this is the quote. Pettigrew owes his life to you. You have sent Voldemort a deputy who is in your debt. When one wizard saves another wizard's life, it creates a certain bond between them. And I'm much mistaken if Voldemort wants his servant in the debt of Harry Potter. This is magic at its deepest. It's most impenetrable, Harry. But trust me, the time may come when you will be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. So what do we think about this quote and this type of magic that he's describing? I mean, is this something that mm. that you believe is sort of similar to this curse we're talking about? Is this a real thing? Is this sort of like, um, like a weird unbreakable vow type of thing, situation? Like what is the magic here that something needs – does something kind of need to give eventually in the situation where you do save another wizard's life? Well, I think – I think Dumbledore is using magic loosely. I don't think... Okay. I mean, a lot of times when Dumbledore talks about magic and the power of love and um, sacrifice and things like that, he talks about it as though it's a spell or if it like has some sort of magical property. I don't think it really does. I think he just feels like it's on the same level mm-hmm. as magic where, you know, it's so powerful and it has this... Com- it creates this compulsion within us to do certain things as though we were magically driven to do them. And I think that's his point. I, I don't think that he's actually saying, like, now Pettigrew can't ever kill you or bring you to harm or anything, because right. he does. At the end of the next book, Pettigrew pricks Harry with a knife in order to bring Voldemort back to life. Right. Um, so clearly it doesn't actually affect his ability to perform actions. It's just Pettigrew will hesitate at a critical moment, and that will give Harry and his friends the time they need to escape essentially. And so this happened. So let's talk about when that actually happens. Right. I I do want to mention that I I always felt that that was a letdown. 
Mm. That was that's one of my least favorite moments in the series, actually. It's because, not a very memorable one. I don't have a good memory of it. No, it's an ignoble, and it doesn't give Pettigrew an arc at all. Um, which m- you could argue that he doesn't need one. His character is that he's very cowardly, um, and that that death is another example of his cowardice. Um, but I, for me, you know, I always felt that this quote was extremely powerful, and and when I was um, in the middle of reading this series and thinking about how is it going to end, mm-hmm. I always felt that there would be some pivotal moment right. where Wormtail would have to choose between his sort of debt obligation to Harry and his um, loyalty to Voldemort, and then he would somehow it would click in his brain that what he was serving um, not only was wrong, it, it was not necessarily going to win, and mm-hmm. he always wanted to be on the winning side. Right. Um, so I always envisioned it as being a, like a pivotal crossroads kind of moment where Pettigrew's decision to choose his debt to Harry over his other loyalties would have some really incredible repercussions. Instead, all it leads to is Pettigrew's own death. Right. So let's just do a quick summary for people that don't remember, like me, of what actually happens. So Pettigrew is is like the jailer at Malfoy Manor, essentially. Right. And Harry and friends are being jailed there. Um, Hermione's being tortured upstairs. Harry and friends manage to escape their bonds, and Wormtail is sent to check on them. Uh, and uh, there's a scuffle, and Wormtail starts choking Harry to death with his silver hand. And then Harry says, remember, your debt to me, you owe me, or something like that. And Pettigrew hesitates, and in that moment of hesitation, his silver hand which was voldemort's and so obeys voldemort's wishes one can assume um turns on Pettigrew and chokes him to death instead Mm -hmm. which doesn't really make that much sense but right the the point of it is that Pettigrew's moment of compassion is what kills him right um and i just feel like that's kind of a weird way of bringing this back around it wasn't what i expected yeah, I guess it's an end. We'll obviously talk more when that we get there. But I, I remember now that you say that that's what happened. But I had I forgot that in that moment Harry like kind of invoked this this debt. Um, yeah. And I guess it was just a last desperate plea. Um, but I think Pettigrew's character is just not what we want it to be, and maybe that's part of the point is that he doesn't have he doesn't have an arc like you said, but mm-hmm. he also. Um, you know the the message if we like analyze this character is is not a good message and i maybe that's also part of the point is like there are some people that um you know are bad and there's also some people that make choices that end up harming them even though like in moral if the world was all moral and everything worked out that they should be able to you know redeem themselves or whatever yeah and we don't have to get too much into this but um I just, I think it is interesting that Harry, like, invokes it, um, because I think Harry's feeling at that moment is, is one of, like, great injustice. Yeah. Because he's like, I saved your life. Yeah. You're gonna kill me? Right. That's not fair. Like, he's you, like you owe me. <laughs> yeah, and especially because Harry's, like, constantly try you know, Harry's not, like, afraid of people trying to kill him. It happens all the time. Right. But he's like, I don't want you to kill me. Like, if anyone's going to kill me, it's, like, going to be Voldemort. It's going to be Voldemort, yeah. And so it's that is also interesting, too, to see, like, okay, the hand turns on Pettigrew. Like, maybe part of that is, too, like, Voldemort saying, like, you also don't get this moment, Pettigrew. Like, you don't get to kill him. Yeah, and, and Voldemort's... Th- this is also what frustrates me about 
Pettigrew's end is that Voldemort's perception of Pettigrew was always accurate. It was that he was pathetic Mm -hmm. and weak and a coward, which is accurate. But I feel like characters in books that are like that deserve to have a moment where the like bad guys belief in them is flipped Mm -hmm. or it's like you know the hero's belief that they could be better is rewarded right or something like that where there's a moment where he's like i'm not just a pathetic weakling right i can stand up to you and then it's like nope and we get that with neville longbottom and that's why they're such great foils yeah maybe that's part of the point is that neville gets the arc that Pettigrew didn't get yeah um and we can talk more about that when we get to the seventh book but that is a really um, good thing to bring up. I'm really glad that you shared that quote. I want to also talk about another quote that Dumbledore has in this chapter, and I can't quote it entirely from memory, but it was something like, you think the dead we love ever truly leave us? Your father is alive in you, Harry. And uh, he's talking about Harry's Harry's stag Patronus mm-hmm. and, and prongs and Harry learning so much about his father that night and, and kind of manifested itself in the form of his Patronus and as like a guardian, as a protector who saved them all. Um, And this really also kind of highlights what Dumbledore's philosophy on life and death Mm -hmm. is, you know, that, that the dead aren't gone. They're just like not in the material plane of the earth, but they're still in our thoughts and and in our experiences and who we are. They're still a part of us. Yeah. And I mean, this is of course like a very famous quote that, from the series that is used a lot, so it's really important, yeah. and for good reason. Um, and I think it's really interesting when we think about um, not only what Harry learns later about Dumbledore's past um, and his experiences with death, but also about um, Harry's experiences in the future with the Resurrection Stone. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, during that, during that time, and then later on in um, the King's Cross chapter, just that idea of, like, even the two of them having that conversation where, like, they're both, they're both still really, they're both there, but they're not. They're, they're both dead at that point, but they're both talking. You know, there's, that's a, there's a lot of debate about that. But Mm. either way, I think it's just really interesting because this is kind of, like, the first discussion of this kind of theme of, like, where are the dead? Also, the veil. Um, yeah. The series mm-hmm. falls through, like, all these things of, like, where are the dead? Are they just kind of whispering right behind the curtain? Are they still here? Um, and so there's the idea of, like, oh, that's sweet. They're living along in your hearts and memories. But then there's also the idea that I like <laughs> to think of in a more magical way of, like, are they maybe really yeah. um, close? There's the, there's the metaphysics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, for me, I enjoy more the philosophical discussion around it the metaphysical discussion i think was really cool before deathly hallows came out before the series was resolved yeah yeah because you didn't um, know because yeah. we didn't know I, and i and i think a lot of people like me thought that the veil and the love room mm-hmm. the department of mysteries were going to play a much bigger role yeah at the me end. too yeah um but i i do truly love the philosophical discussion that dumbledore and harry share here and and how it you know, has reverberations throughout the whole rest of the series, especially you were talking about with the Resurrection Stone. Dumbledore's struggle with his past and his ghosts, you know, they are still there for him, mm-hmm. but his longing is always to have them be there in the flesh, too, right. to make up for his past mistakes. Um, whereas Harry, by the time he uses the Resurrection Stone, it's not because he has that craving um, to make up for any mistakes or anything. It's just because 
He's like, yes, they are already here with me, yeah. but I would like to be able to see them as yeah. well as to feel them. And that's, you know, the, the scene with the resurrection stone, I think, also parallels a lot to um, the ending of this book and even the, the time turner and the Patronus here because it's also like Harry in the forest seeing mm. his father, you know, in in more of a real form that time, but still... Like, seeing his father, seeing his family, seeing yeah. people that are with him. Um, and it is obviously really powerful. So this quote that is really memorable from this book foreshadows that. Yeah, and this series, one of the main themes of this series is, is cycles and things happening again. Mm-hmm. You know, things coming back around. Um, so we've talked already about how... Harry's John into the forest and his brush with Voldemort and brush with death and the centaur's vision in the stars and all that is reflected in the seventh book. So too is, you know, James as a protector yeah. in this or in, in the last chapter in Hermione's secret coming back around now to, um, in, in Deathly Hallows as not really a guardian, but more of just like a support system. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's in the same place kind of. So, yeah, I mean, definitely, like, this book is all about cycles and about things happening again. Um, and, and of course, you know, Dumbledore's line to Harry is not just about keeping people in your hearts and minds, it, but it is also about, you know, recognizing that they are actually a part of who you are. Right. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about Hermione this book, um, rightfully so, <laughs> and we just found out... Um, in the last chapter, Hermione's secret, about her secret with the Time Turner, why she's been so exhausted. We've been kind of with the knowledge of what has been happening with her. We've been going through the chapters and seeing her get more and more, like, physically and mentally unwell, basically, as time goes on. And she finally sort of, I feel like in the last chapter, she not only, um, you know, eventually then gives up the time turner, but she also got to use it for something that she felt like probably was really worth it and saw what it could do and also saw how dangerous it was and how scary it was um, to go through that experience. And so she decides that she's dropping muggle studies. She already dropped divination. That means she has whatever the normal amount of classes is. And so she will not have to do that anymore. And I think that even though that's a small thing and just makes sense for to happen at the end of this book, I think it's a really important part of this book for Hermione to be able to set boundaries with herself and work on her perfectionism because yeah. she um, is able to say, like, it's okay, like, I like my studies, I'm good at it, but I don't need to do it. And um, right. that is huge. And so I think that I really love this for Hermione and I'm really happy. And I think if she hadn't kind of had this experience at the end... Um, she wouldn't have had made that next step forward and kind of her journey of moving away from some of those crutches and things that she has. Yeah, it's a great completion to her arc in this book. And, you know, Hermione was the subject of a lot of discussion this book because not that she was causing strife, but that there was a lot of drama around Hermione because of decisions that she'd made. And, you know, we were calling into question her consideration of her friends at different times and just like okay you're taking on too much and it's affecting you emotionally um and all of that too but this decision 
it's not only because she recognizes that the time turner is too powerful for her to be able to use safely, but it's also because she's, as you were saying, she's really setting boundaries on herself and she's realizing the toll that it had taken on her mentally and emotionally and that she maybe hadn't been a very good friend to Harry and Ron at points Mm -hmm. during the year. Um, Hermione is going to be the main support system for both Harry and Ron next book. Yeah. Poor, as, her, as poor they Hermione, honestly. Now I'm just thinking, I'm like, oh, she's going to get a break next book. But like, she's not. She's just going to have to be dealing with all these dumb boys' emotions and they're but, not going to be able to talk to each other. But that is her arc. She goes yeah. from, from being someone who's very wrapped up in herself, this book, to being someone who now other people rely on for support next book. It's true. And she, I mean, like, we'll obviously talk a lot about a spew and everything next book, but... <laughs> I think that part of part of what her experience in this book, and I mean everything leading up to it, um, makes her be kind of into this activism for people that can't stand up for themselves. And I think that she realizes, like, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes at Hogwarts. And even though she wasn't, like, part of that, she was still a student, she is realizing what it's like to kind of keep this have this burden with you and not to not be able to change your circumstances and to just be kind of doing what you um doing what you think you have to do um and i i think that it all really affects her next book but at least she will have a nice break yeah for the summer and then there's a great moment when they're on the train and ron gets pigwidgeon as a present yes and, and he's really happy um but the first thing that he does when he gets Pigwidgeon is that he um, lets Crookshanks sniff him. And then he says, what do you reckon? Definitely an owl? It's really cute. It's really cute because he's like, I trust Crookshanks now. Like Crookshanks was right about Scabbers yeah. the whole time. And like, <laughs> it's just funny. It's like a great example of Ron's comedic it is. Uh, chops. So Yeah, I love that line. I think it's really funny. And it's because like there's been so much drama. I mean, the amount of time that like we've talked about Crookshanks and Scabbers this whole book yeah. too, um, obviously for good reason later, but it's Ron has just been like so angry at Hermione, especially about having Crookshanks. And now he feels like grateful to Crookshanks. And mm-hmm. it's just like also a nice moment of peace for them. So as we mentioned earlier, and as we talk about kind of the book as a whole, the ending of this book is really the last happy ending um, until the final ending final ending of the series. Um, but this is the last happy ending with kind of the fewest consequences as well. So of course, there's a lot of bad things that just happened, like Pettigrew escaping and Sirius having to go into hiding. Um, Lupin has to leave. Um, but again, like nobody died that we're upset about. Um nobody really died at all um actually no one was like really traumatized no one's dead no one's insane Um, buckbeak escaped and like hagrid's happy like all these small things that really add up to like everyone's in a good place or in the best place they could be at the end of this book yeah like on balance everybody's pretty happy yeah and their position is improved from the last time that we saw them at the end of book two yeah exactly that's true um, so this is just really something to kind of dwell in and enjoy. Um, and th- the very, very end of this chapter and the book when, um, Harry has this interaction with Vernon, which I just always like feel crazy when I, when I have the end of the book and Harry like has the Dursleys picking him up or whatever. I'm like, 
in my mind, I'm like, why are they even picking him up? Like, I know, like, there's reasons, but, you know, it just seems so crazy, like, that they would even do the thing where they would, like, come to the station. Like, I know they have to, and I know the reasons why, but I just, I'm always kind of surprised when I get to that point anyway. But Vernon's really mad. He sees him with a letter, and he's like, that's better not be, you know, another form for me to sign. And um, then Harry gets to use it to say, like, no, my godfather gave me permission, and also, I, it's a letter from my godfather, and... And he's an insane criminal. He's an insane criminal, which, uh, also, bringing it back to the beginning of this book, it's a, a very full circle, because yeah. he, they're watching the news, um, you know, and seeing about Black escaping, and so, um, he feels like, I have a ton of leverage with, with the Dursleys now, and um, we can imagine, like, what will happen when he's there this summer and how he can threaten them basically uh, to let be nicer to him or let him do what he wants. And so we feel excited for Harry going into this. I think part of your like perception of it as being really weird that Vernon always comes to pick Harry up is because of the juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Like he hates anything that has to do with magic. And, and every time Harry gets off the train, we see Vernon and he's standing near like the Weasleys, usually, right, right, and, who are like the most magical wizarding family in the world from our perspective. And he sees them embracing and loving Harry. And... Yeah, and it's very alien to him. He's totally out of his element there. Yeah. So that's funny, and like we've just been at Hogwarts for the whole year. Every time right. we see him, so it's like it's it's very like fish out of water. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the the humor comes from. Um, but this is why I argue that this is the happiest ending of any book in the series because even at the end of Sorcerer's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone, rather, and Chamber of Secrets, which are, you know, happy endings in a sense, like, um, there were still, like, real tragedies there. Mm-hmm. Um, Philosopher's Stone, maybe not so much, but Quirrell's dead. That's not nothing. And... Harry interacts with Voldemort for the first time and is, like, upset. Yeah, and he's upset. But But even more than that, when Harry goes home for the summer, he doesn't have anything to look forward to right. both of those years. He's like, I guess I have to endure... Um, like the Dursleys for three months until I can go back to Hogwarts. At the end of Philosopher's Stone, he's really optimistic. He's like, there's no way Dudley can pick on a wizard Mm -hmm. because he'll be too scared that I can curse him. But then Harry realizes I can't actually cast spells. Then he gets in trouble for Dobby casting a spell and Mm -hmm. the Dursleys realize they can just lock him up and he can't do anything about it. Right. Um, You know, in the beginning of this book, when, when Aunt Marge is visiting, he has to behave or he can't visit Hogsmeade all year. So they've got leverage over him mm-hmm. every single time. Now he is the one with leverage. Right. And so he's always that... had to do these elaborate, like he had to elaborately escape um, before right. chamber, before the beginning of Chamber of Secrets, all these things that happened that it's like now he's just going to be able to ask to go to the Weasleys and go, which we'll see. And, and this book, definitely Harry's arc has been that he's more sure of himself and he's more assertive. Yeah. Um, like at the beginning of the book, he was so... Just, like, stoically taking it when Aunt Marge was insulting his parents mm-hmm. and, and whatever until he finally exploded. But as he as the book's gone on, he's realized, like, the consequences of my actions are never as bad as I think they're going to be. Mm-hmm. I should be more assertive, more confident in myself, and more willing to just take charge of a situation. Because I clearly know what I'm doing, apparently. And right. he's 13, so a lot of that self-assuredness isn't deserved yet. No. Um, and this is kind of also, like, a, this is like a flaw as well for harry going forward but it is something that has changed definitely changed and it's it's definitely good for him in this moment especially because 
I, I, it, even though it seems kind of crazy later to say this, I think that his self-esteem has been really low kind of up until this, like, kind of point or midpoint of this book. Yeah, I agree. And so let's talk more about, like, the place that Prisoner of Azkaban has in the whole series. Yeah. I think it, it's a really interesting thing to talk about. Um, we, we had Corey on last episode. She was saying how, um, for her, this is, like, the major turning point in the series yeah. when things start to get real. Um, but I would even say, for me, Goblet of Fire is more of a turning point. Yeah. This is more of, like, the last hurrah of a book that is truly fun and lighthearted at the end. Yeah, I think so. And the the rest of the books, you know, Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, the end of those books and through the first 95% of Deathly Hallows yeah. is, like, very dark. Right. And depressing. And our protagonist is getting beaten down. And it seems hopeless. You know what I mean? It does. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would agree that the, for me, the turning point is really Goblet of Fire when um, things go to kind of like late later series Harry Potter. But um, I do think that this book, you know, starts the darkness. I feel like this is sort of a transition book in yeah. some ways. Um, I would say like fourth is like, you know, it's there's a nice beginning, but then it pretty immediately starts to be very intense and dark. And I think that this book is, you know, a good combination of both, but there's a lot of more intense themes. Um, There's a lot of, like, potential for really bad things happening. Um, A lot of darker, more complicated magic happening. And so I think it is this really, the transitional book. And it's the transitional book. It's like if they're age 13, like they're starting to be teenagers, you see their personalities are coming in stronger they're getting you know moodier in various ways they all have their own things so it's definitely like a and moody's there yeah well next book but this book i do think they're very like starting to be very teenage kind of in their attitudes towards each other and And towards authority too i think Mm -hmm. this is also the book where they really start to rebel against authority in major ways right they're not ready yet to say like screw you, Dumbledore, we're going to do whatever we want. Right. But they're also, like, they don't mind as much going up against teachers and even the Ministry of Magic. Right. Yeah. And, like, I do think it's interesting, the, the fudge kind of being involved in the last few chapters. I mean, really only the last, like, day in in real life, but... Yeah, it was um, the last, like, six chapters, I think. But he's, he's involved, and he's just kind of, like, a guy who's around, and he's, like, supposedly the most powerful or like the highest position um yeah. in the wizarding world and you know ron's like hey you know when we talked about that when ron's like hey he might not get executed um when, yeah, he's and, like talking back to him and you know they all are in that in this chapter they're like you know he's standing there and they're kind of yelling back at him and so it's just it is interesting they're getting a sense that they do have power kind of weirdly but they do have power yeah in this world even even just on a personal level when if we go back to the beginning of our discussion today, if we look at that that scene again, where it's the six of them arguing, right? Fudge isn't the most powerful person in the room. No, he does not have control of that conversation. And if you're the if you're essentially the prime minister and you have a room of like a few teachers and a couple kids, and you're not the one in charge, it's, you're not a very good leader. Yeah, and it doesn't bode well for the for the wizarding community that this is their head of government, essentially. It doesn't, and we'll see a lot next book and and to come. I think Fudge is a more interesting character than we maybe think of on first read through, but I do think that this is kind of the beginning of 
us seeing the incompetence and kind of yeah. big cracks in in Fudge. We start to see them almost immediately. Um, our first brush with the Ministry of Magic uh, in in book one was Dumbledore thinking that he had to go to the to the Ministry of Magic to help them with something. In the second book, we only see the Ministry when Fudge comes to arrest Hagrid for opening the Chamber of Secrets again, and we see how incompetent they are there. And then this book, all they do is screw up. Right. You know, at first it's Fudge personally going to make sure that Harry's safe. And Harry's like, this is weird. Right. <laughs> uh, and then and then it's like all the things that they do with Buckbeak and Sirius towards the end. So, yeah, we're, we're going into to Goblet of Fire, which really I think is the pivotal moment in the series between Dumbledore and the Ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, the Parting of the Ways being one of my favorite chapters. Um, and we're really starting to see the cracks form in that relationship already here. Yeah. So I think this book does set up a lot of the things that we're going to see throughout the rest of the series. First of all, as we've discussed before, the tools that Harry gets in this book are pivotal tools. Mm -hmm. The Marauder's Map, the Firebolt. I mean, he already has the invisibility go. He gets it back. The Time Turner, the the concept of of time traveling becomes very important when they're all destroyed in the Order of the Phoenix. Right. I mean, there's one also I was thinking when we were talking about Hermione earlier that um, part of, I think, what this has done for her is... For her to be able to have like respect and knowledge of magical objects and i think that mm-hmm. she um is very good at using powerful magical objects as the series goes on so we see like especially in the seventh book with her bag and the like tents and things she creates for them um we see her being able to um handle and like use horcruxes and like be uh wary around them as she should be so i think that she um that's one thing that also develops from this time turner use okay yeah and then but also it's like setting up a lot of things that uh that happen in the series in terms of like characters coming back sure you know personality differences and changes and interactions between people all this stuff about harry's father and uh, the interactions between him and Snape and Lupin and Sirius and Pettigrew are all coming back around again um, in, in a major way. And I think a lot of that, uh, a lot of that interpersonal conflict gets set up here. Yeah, it does. And we're going to keep referring back to yeah, it. Yeah, Snape, Snape's arc um, that will last throughout the rest of the series um, really kind of gets going at this point. And there's a lot of, yeah. a lot of underlying things that we don't yet know about, but... Um, this is starting. Snape goes from being kind of more of a background character mm-hmm. slash antagonist to being more of a front character. Yeah. Um, and, and he'll continue to kind of have more of a front-loaded role, I think, for the rest of the series. Right. So we want to thank everyone so much that's been listening to season three of the Harry podcast. And we want to say that we're going to take about a month break and... We will be starting Goblet of Fire. Um, we may, and you will, I guess, see what the next episode is <laughs> is, uh, is titled. We may do a couple of movies, or at least the Prisoner of Azkaban movie. I know we talked with Corey a lot about that um, last week and how it parallels with this, so we may do that as well. But we will be off for a few weeks, and then we will be coming back to start with some new content. So thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Owl Post again. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially our summary of where we think Prisoner of Azkaban fits in the whole series, 
please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time, in about a month, when we begin our favorite book, The Goblet of Fire. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.